Welcome to the Horizon Search Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Lisa Forrest, an expert in sponsor finance with 36 years of experience in SBA lending. She offers a wealth of experience in buyer financing for search funds, independent sponsors, third-party M&A, and growth by acquisition scenarios. If you need money for a business, you'll want to tune in and follow up with Lisa. I'll now let her share a bit about her background in her own words. Sure. Thank you so much, David, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Any chance that I can get when I'm invited to speak to our next generation of entrepreneur? I always jump at that opportunity, especially getting the word out to as many people as possible and as diverse a community as possible. This idea of acquiring a company, it can sound daunting. And I know that there are some communities that don't even get the chance to hear about it. So I'm really happy about being a part of your initiative so that anything I can do to help, anything I can do about getting the word out, I'm happy to do it. So I'm Lisa Forrest. I'm head of our sponsor search fund lending group at Live Oak Bank. We are the nation's number one SBA lender. We're really well known for that. We also have a specialty side of the house where we're doing middle market, we're doing venture, we do specialty financing as well. I think that this community would know us best from our interaction with SBA lending, small business administration lending. And I'm so happy to have been in this niche for my entire career. I have just enjoyed my lower middle market, small business entrepreneur intersection. It's just been a joy to have been involved in that for the, the my entire career. So I'm, I'm happy to help. So ask away. Okay. Thank you for that. Well, starting with the SBA loan, what are the top level details that you would want to communicate to people over why they should use an SBA loan, what it's good for, or any like caveats or warnings that you would give people? Yeah, you bet. And also, if I can just put a plug in, I do a weekly office hours, a power hour Zoom session every Wednesday. And so for those listening in that this might be completely new to them. This idea of acquiring a company using the SBA it might be completely new. They might be really curious about it. They might be in any part of their search journey. If they'd like to hear more about it, I do an hour every Wednesday, eight o'clock Pacific Standard. David, I'm happy for you to send my email contact out sure. for people just to email me for the links to register. I do that myself and with my senior analyst, Sarah Andrews. We do it every Wednesday. Excellent. So we will go into a lot more detail on this, but I'll just give you the high level. The idea is, is that the U.S. Small Business Administration actually guarantees a portion of the bank lender's loan that they are giving and providing to the business acquirer. And so for our purposes today, I'm really going to stick to business acquisition, literally a next generation of entrepreneur buying aging baby boomer privately held company. So I'm going to speak about business acquisition. So the SBA guarantees a portion of the bank's loan, and that is supposed to, the idea is that it compels a lender to make you know a more aggressive loan, a more sort of acquirer-friendly loan than if it were non-guaranteed. And generally, the more friendly places are with regard to less down payment, longer term, and kind of collateral agnostic, i.e. these are cash flow loans, giving a longer term to the buyer, the borrower, so that you can afford more loan because it is a longer term, i.e. that drives less down payment 
And also because of the guarantee that the U.S. Small Business Administration is placing on these loans, it's also compelling a lender to not require sort of gobs of outside collateral. Hmm. And most commercial lenders, commercial lending loans are going to have more heavy down payment requirements. It's going to be a shorter term which is going to drive more equity being required. And it's also usually requiring to have more collateral. So what that does is that eliminates a lot of very qualified operators from even participating because they don't have as much capital, they don't have as much collateral, but they might have a really great operational skill set. Okay, thank you for that. There's a lot in there. (laughs) It's all very digestible. I was just thinking... In terms of my next question, as I've learned more about search funds, there's a few different models and each person's model is kind of like their sports team. They're proponents of of that. And so they tell you, of course, this is the best model. So self-funded searchers say self-funded is the best. And each from my cursory kind of research so far, each has uh, advantages and disadvantages. For example, with the traditional fund, it's great to have mentors with respect to your investors, but sometimes the internal rate of return that you have those uh, performance thresholds you have to hit year over year can be a little bit daunting for uh, first-time operators. And with self-funded, particularly with the SBA loan, the personal guarantee is something that scares away some people. I was wondering if you could talk to that at all. Is it as scary as it sounds? Is there something that uh, people can con- need to consider when they're approaching that? So I'll just kind of start with the idea of the different paths of acquisition out there, and then we'll end up with this personal guarantee. Sure. There are absolutely many different paths. In the search fund space, generally you hear two conversations. It's either self-funded searchers that are literally paying for their search, i.e. they're not backed by investors that are helping, you know, kind of pay the salary, pay the way of the searchers while they are looking for a company to acquire. A self-funded search is paying their search, paying their search way. And then generally in this lexicon, it is also meaning self-funded searches generally get SBA loans because they don't have a whole host of investors behind them. So it's generally they're buying a smaller companies smaller acquisitions that they can sort of digest more on their own. That's not to say, though, that there aren't investors in the self-funded space and investors helping bridge equity gap in the SBA space, because there are. There are lots of investors out there that are doing it in a really smart way that works with the rules and regulations of the SBA. SIG, Search Investor Group is yeah. out there, Pursuant, Sam Rosati, lots of investors are out there in the SBA space. But you're a little bit more on your own with that search part versus yeah. a traditionally funded searcher where they've got their investors that are funding their search and you know are absolutely there more so from an advisory role through the whole entire search and operational aspect. But the self-funded search space and ecosystem is taking a lot more cues from this traditionally funded space as well. We're seeing lots more advisory boards, advisors, and we actually have, a, you know, you know, really capable operators delving into the SBA space. So you hit upon the thing though, that is also another divining line, and that is the personal guarantee. Mm. For funded searchers going that route, when the, the, those types of investors are not going to be putting their PGs on anything. And those are the kinds of searchers that are looking at potentially larger transactions 
And the idea of putting a personal guarantee on something is just not the path they're going to take. Self-funded searchers using the Small Business Administration Program are definitely having to get comfortable with that idea. Anyone who owns 20% or more of the company has to personally guarantee. So, you know, you're coming in with less down payment, they're cash flow loans, they're not as collateralized, if collateralized at all. So that comes with a personal guarantee. I see. Thank you for that. I'd like to talk about some of the new developments in uh, SBA. At first, it looked like they're going to be rolled out late May, and then that got pushed back a little bit. Are you able to talk at all about some of the changes that we've seen over the last couple of months regarding the SBA loan? Absolutely. And they actually did get rolled out in the middle of May. Okay. It's just that it has taken lenders, sellers, buyers, brokers, investors. It's taken us all in this whole ecosystem of, of trying to get the next generation of entrepreneur into that ownership seat. It's taken all of us a couple of months to you know really understand what the rule changes mean. <laughs> yeah. And then what does it mean for each lender? What's it mean for you as a buyer? What's it mean for you as a seller? So let me hit some of the big changes. Let's start with down payment. So usually in an SBA transaction, for the most part over the last, you know, kind of couple decades, for the most part, it's 10% down, maybe 10 to 15% seller note. And then the lender's doing sort of 75 to 80% financing. So 10% down is really 90% financing because you also have a seller note in there that is is debt. So between the SBA lender and the seller, that's generally 90% of the transaction. And then the acquirer is coming in with 10% down. So already, that's already far better than if you're doing a conventional transaction, which might be more like, you know, 40 or 50% financing, you know, SBA was already better than that. So SBA is trying to open up the funnel even more for our next generation of entrepreneur. They've changed the rules where you still need 10% down on the total project cost. You still need 10% down. But now the buyer's equity can be as low as two and a half percent. Wow. Yes. Wow. (laughs) So two and a half percent. And then the seller knows, so they still want 10% down. So two and a half from the buyer and then seven and a half can be in the form of a seller note. Okay. it can be on no principal and interest for two years and or interest only for two years. So if it's going to be augmenting that two and a half by the buyer to get to that 10%, then it can be made up even kind of more aggressively with the seller taking a full standby note, no principal and interest for two years and or interest only for two years. So it's aggressive. It's really aggressive. And I think it's going to do a couple of things. One, it is definitely going to open up the availability for acquirers to acquire companies, 100%. We are all still thinking about smart structuring. Not every case is it going to make sense for our acquirer to only have 2.5% in. It might work beautifully in some cases, and in some cases, it's, it's probably not the right thing to do. So this is not a one size fits all. Everyone is just really going to have to think about things in a real thoughtful way. Right now, now we know the rules. Each lender is going to be able to apply those rules the way that makes sense for them. It sounds like it's going to open up to a lot of people that might not have otherwise thought about owning a company. What are some of the changes that you see on the horizon? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely going to be the case where folks that might not have had enough personal resources, personal liquidity, now that gives them a chance to, with the seller note on standby, augment their ability to acquire a company. So it's absolutely going to do that. I think in some cases, I'm just going to say it's probably not enough equity in some cases. In some cases, that smaller, uh, that lesser amount of equity are going to work out just fine. So it's going to be on a deal to deal basis. No one size fits all. That's it. Not one size fits all. So another change that has been really interesting is this idea of a partial buy-in. I know some folks are calling it rollover equity, Uh, which it is not. Similar, but very different. Okay. So the rule before is that that you had to buy 100% of the company. Now there's been a shift where you can partially buy into a seller's existing company. So Mm. it's partial buy-in, partial change of ownership. So in that case, you are buying into their entity. These have to be stock acquisitions because you're buying into their entity. And then the amount of ownership you have going forward and the amount of the ownership that the seller has going forward is going to be deal to deal. You know, maybe you buy in 85% and the seller retains 15% stock purchase. And the reason why you're doing a partial buy-in can run the gamut. And it just depends on if that structure makes sense for you. If you're doing a partial buy-in, then the seller can stay on for longer than a year, Okay, which is a change. If you're doing a 100% buyout, the rule of the seller only able to stay on for up to a year still stands. So a 100% buyout, seller can only stay on in a transition role for up to a year. If you're doing this partial buy-in, then the seller can stay on for extended periods of time as may make sense. Okay. Is it possible to create a hybrid of an SBA loan with the traditional, like a pool of, of capital where instead of the personal equity or, uh, that the buyer is putting in is actually an SBA loan and then have a pool of investors on the side. So you're creating this pool of like going after larger companies. Well, anyone who owns 20% or more of the company has to personally guarantee. Okay. So in that case, generally, that sounds more like a traditionally funded process where if you've got investors that are bringing all the money in, Uh typically they don't want to personally guarantee. So, but having said that, a lot of many of our SBA type deals where you have, you know, you can have minority investors in on those deals. They just have to stay below a 20% economic benefit threshold, or they'd have to personally guarantee. So mostly what we're seeing is if you have investors on your deal, you might own 60, 65, 70, 75% of the company, and you have, I don't know, three or four co-investors each individually less than a 20% owner, helping you pull gap equity together. That exists today. You can do that today. Okay. So the SBA loan, the maximum is $5 million. Is that correct? To any one guarantor, you can have $5 million outstanding at any one time. Okay. So let's say you have two partners going in as the acquirers. They each own 50%. Uh You each together have used up your $5 million of guarantee. If you have two partners, you don't get five and the other one gets five. You're using as a guarantor, you're using up those dollars potentially together. But theoretically, if each external investor can only own up to 20%, you could have a $25 million acquisition using a $5 million SBA loan. Is that correct? No, 
Nope, that's not exactly right. Okay. So the guarantor yeah. in that situation is gonna is going to put the PG on. Okay. They're going to use their $5 million of guarantee. Right. If you are an individual investor on a transaction and you're below 20% ownership, you're not personally guaranteeing. So you're not using up any of your personal guarantee at all. I see. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you for clarifying yeah, no, that. I, you know, you can't have all those folks down and now you get a $25 million pool that, you know, that I would say be how awesome, big, right? how big can we get? Because most of them seem to cap around $10 million acquisitions with the SPA approach. But the guarantors is what's eating up the guarantee. It's the guarantor that the maximum guarantee goes against their guarantee. If you're a minority owner, you can invest in lots of different transactions and that's not impacting the ability to get that $5 million. Okay. I'd like to pivot a little bit to talk about the role of non-bank lenders. And you'd also mentioned uh, you could talk about fintechs. Would you be able to talk about their importance and, and how they might shape this, this space? Yeah. And so with non-bank lenders, and they've been around for a really long time, it's just that new charters haven't been granted in a really, really long time to non-bank lenders. Okay. So new, new charters haven't been granted in a, a long time. So with this new change to the SOP, now charters are available to fintechs, also to credit unions that have usually never been able to qualify. So I'm assuming that that is definitely going to open up again more SBA lending potential because now you're bringing more different kinds of lenders into the space who are going to have a little bit different reach, a little bit different niche. And I think that that could be a really good thing for the program. The one thing to note, it's going to take them time to get up to speed. So for a credit union that's really never made commercial loans or business loans before, and now they're able to, it's just going to take them time to get up to speed, making sure they're doing good policies. They've got all their procedures and all that stuff in place. So I think over time, as these new entrants get up to speed and get comfortable with the process and, and you know what good lending is, I think it absolutely will open up more avenues for more folks to become business owners. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a pretty big deal. Yeah, it sounds like it. Thank you. I was curious, given your impressive experience, What are some uh, stories that stand out to you of folks that you've helped acquire a company that might not have otherwise had that opportunity? I've got so many favorites. Everyone becomes my favorite, you know, because, you know, it sounds a little hokey, but we are really, you know, financing people's dreams and financing the next generation of entrepreneur is a really rewarding thing that I do for a living. I mean, most of the economy and the most of the employed are by small business owners. That is still a real thing. So when I help the continuation of a company where the 75-year-old seller, if they don't sell to this next generation third party because they're, you know, their family members don't want to take over this business, that's potential, you know, 10 employees losing their jobs. That's losing economic benefit for the entire country. So with our searchers, they're coming in, they're continuing on the basis Plus, then they're coming in to grow the company and adding even more employees. So I've got folks coming in from all walks of life that are coming in to be this next generation. And it's also not only about the acquirer, it's also about the seller. The sellers had this company for 40 years. They started it. They've grown it and maintained it for 40 years. And now this lending is funding their retirement. 
So, I mean, it is a big risk being a small business owner. And when your retirement is held in your business, this loan transaction unlocks their retirement for them to go do what they want to do next and then bring in our, you know, new business owner to now kind of get their success, you know, up and running. So there really isn't just one transaction. I mean, you're part of a virtuous cycle. That is such a great way to put it. That is such a great way to put it, the virtuous cycle. And these are all kinds of industries, smaller, larger companies. It's just been an impressive thing to be involved with for the last three decades. And it's just getting started. All of the silver tsunami that's being discussed and it's been discussed, it's a real thing. You know, 70 to 80 year olds have got to sell their companies. They just do. And this is just getting started. We're just getting started helping entrepreneurs come in and take over these companies. Wow, that's exciting to hear that there's still a lot of runway left for those folks that might just be hearing about this. Absolutely. Well, looking at the future of SBA loans, do you foresee anything that that might change or that you would like to see change, like say in the next like three to five years? So this is a good segue from what we were just talking about. I think this, the runway and the path for next generation of entrepreneur to come in and help sellers with their retirement, it is just getting started. So the yeah. future of SBA loans, I think, is really strong. I mean, we have economic cycles. We've had them. We're going to keep having them. The SBA is there. It's almost it works well when the the economy's humming along. Works great. The SBA is also a counter cyclical kind of program. So I just see the runway is just being strong. It's going to continue. It's going to have momentum around it. I know we have interest rates in this with spread prime plus spread. I mean, our acquirers are paying sort of 10 and a half, maybe upwards of 11 percent interest. And I know for folks that are new to this idea and are younger in their careers, it seems astronomical. For those of us who've been around for a little bit, you know, a 10% interest rate, 8 to 10 to 11% interest rate is actually more stabilized. That interest rate has been closer to this end of the spectrum for my entire career than it's been on the other end. So this idea of interest rates being high and now business acquisition is going to stop. That's Mm. not true. The market needs to adjust. Sellers now, because buyers' debt is more expensive, they might have to reduce prices a bit, you know, to to adjust to this new normal, which has kind of been the old old normal (laughs) on interest rates. So the future of SBA loans looks strong. Okay. That's nice to hear. I've got a random question for you. I don't think it's going to be hard for you to answer, so I don't mind asking it, even though I didn't let you know about it beforehand. But bring it. Is AI affecting your industry at all? And if so, how? And if not, do you think it might? Yeah, that's interesting. So, well, one, from the standpoint of writing content, it's definitely helpful. It's helpful getting content out there, kind of lifting the burden of you know, an outline, et cetera. So writing content, it's really, really helpful. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to make a mark. I'm sure it's going to be helpful. I'm sure it's going to be involved. The thing that it, I don't know that it replaces, maybe it does. I don't know, maybe it replaces my 30 years of experience. Maybe it replaces that I get a gut feel about what makes for a successful transition versus not. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you can you can put into chat GBT, what should you be concerned about in a small business acquisition transition? It's going to spit all that stuff out. Yeah. There is quantitative and there's qualitative. So right. having numbers on a page 
is one thing. Really understanding what you think about it and how you interact with your borrowers and your buyers. There's some part to it that I don't think AI is going to replace, nor should it. But I think that it will be really helpful in a lot of ways. Okay. I saw an interview with Sam Altman, the CEO, I believe, of uh, OpenAI, which runs ChatGPT. And he was saying, be careful about hallucinations because it can present very convincing you know, data deliverables that you think, mm-hmm. oh, this is great and run with it. And it's all like fabricated or because it's pulling from like science fiction and also like all corners of the web. I've noticed personally when I ask it to give me some references for something, it gives me what looks like uh, good references until I drill down. And then I get this message. I'm sorry for any misunderstanding, but as an AI model, like I basically just made that up. Those aren't, I was like, oh, great. So I got to go back to the, the library and do it myself. So just, yeah, yeah. you got to be careful about not delegating too much too soon. Yeah. And, that, and that's a good way to put it. I, you know, I'm not smart enough to know where it's going to be helpful. It, it's probably going to end up being helpful in a way I didn't even think about yet. I just think that the years of experience there is still so much personal interaction you have that is required and it is helpful. So I'm really looking forward to the places where it is the AI is helpful that I haven't even thought about. And it'll be curious to see where maybe it replaces some of what I do. Mm. I'm going to be really curious to see about that. But I still do think that there is gut feel and intuition and lots of things that come into play that I would be really surprised if it gets to that corner of what we do. But you know, hey, when I started my lending career, there was no email. Okay. We didn't even have facts. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot more smart people out there bringing uh, technological improvements to the world. I'm biting my tongue. There's many jokes I want to make, but... I know, but you're that's... being nice to me, David. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. It's mutual, I'm sure. Is there any advice that you would give to new entrepreneurs or mid-career professionals that are like getting bitten by the acquisition bug and want to get into this game? Yeah. And there's room for everybody. It's so interesting. So I've been financing business acquisition for 30 years. So it's been around for a really, really long time. There are some people that are coming to it new. It's fresh for them and they think this is a new thing. So I would say, just don't get too too fancy with it. You know, these are still people that you are interacting with on the sell side And they just want to know that you're going to take care of their employees. You're going to give them a fair prize and you're going to get along with them to the best of your ability post-close. So there's still so much personal interaction that has to happen. And mid-career, so I'll talk to to both, mid-career searchers. It's so funny. Sometimes they're like, hey, I'm in my 40s. Am I too old? And that one makes me really laugh because no, you're not too old. The mid-career searcher has resume and personal financial statements. So they've got kind of a leg up, so to speak. And over my career, I've been used to financing people in their 50s and gas 60s going to buy a company because they're coming out of finally coming out of corporate America. They still got a lot left in the tank and they want to buy a company even in their 50s or 60s. That's awesome. Mid-career, we're seeing a lot of 40-year-olds do this and that's fantastic. And they've got resume and resources. So for the acquirers on the younger end of the scale, great. Love the enthusiasm, love the vision, the ambition. And those are the places where getting connected with as many people. It's about the relationship. So for the the younger folks that might 
kind of live more in a social media kind of context, it is still about the relationships. So get to know as many people as possible. Talking on the phone helps. Getting out and physically visiting sellers and investors and people that can help you in your network is really, really important. So just get out there and make personal connections. Great. Noted. Well, Lisa, I really enjoyed all of your your insights. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to highlight? I'm just going to reiterate. I think it's a great time to be a business acquirer. There's always going to be ebbs and flows in the economy and in certain markets and certain niches are going to kind of ebb and flow. It is a great time to be an acquirer. The sellers out there need to sell their companies and our economy needs these businesses to continue on. So, I mean, it is a virtuous circle to use your words, David. And I I think that is just the best way to end this. And, And I am so excited for next generation of entrepreneurs that are inserting themselves into this this circle at this stage of the game. So good luck to everybody. I'm happy to to be a resource for anyone. And again, if you're on the newer end of the search process, my Wednesday session might be helpful to you if of interest. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. Our next guest is Greg Geronimus co-founder of Footbridge Partners, an accomplished private equity expert and former co-CEO of Smart Tours. He leverages his vast experience from Goldman Sachs and his MBA from Harvard Business School to lecture at top MBA programs nationwide. Greg is also actively involved in the search fund community, co-author of Yale School of Management cases, and serves on numerous company boards, all while making significant contributions to the philanthropic sector in San Francisco. He will share some valuable insights on the evolution of a searcher from being a student to running his own successful firm. Until then, eyes on the horizon.